Welcome everybody to our CEDA interview series on the challenges within diversity and inclusion with its aim to empower society to hold powerful dialogues. Many of us have had that moment, OMG, what is my role in this? Many of us have asked ourselves, how can I make a constructive contribution? And more specifically for us, the white mediators, what work must I undertake? The last five months have been a reaction to the last 401 years, and this has moved our entire global society. Mediators and conflict experts now have an opportunity to use their skills to take a lead in building dialogue, discourse, and discussion. But what if you do nothing? Someone else will fill the void. Who? Will society become even more polarized between the extremes of the woke and racism deniers? Will the two poles become more entrenched, seeing escalating levels of physical conflicts leading to who knows what end? What if we take action? We can start a white healing process, digesting history, past crimes, and so frame present discrimination. And we can help our BIPOC brothers and sisters Black, Indigenous and people of color overcome their trauma and exclusion. We can change ourselves and society by applying the learnings of peacemaking, creating equity and balanced community economies by equipping citizens and governments so that they may finally hold crucial conversations that engage and maintain the dialogue. The ultimate vision is that every human being has the possibility to live a full life and develop to their fullest potential. What is out there? There are protests, activists, there are city and state forces, but is there dialogue? Well, not really. Right now, we can say that most of the race conversations are not producing anything beyond argument and polarization. There is much more heat than light, more shouting than listening, Passion is being articulated in a way that is not landing with the other side. The big question and task for us mediators is, can we turn the current anger into constructive action? And how? Why CEDA? CEDA has its part to play. With 30 years experience of small, medium and large scale conflict, we have worked with communities, businesses, and governments to de-escalate and reverse conflict and facilitate dialogue in order to create a mutually beneficial way of continuing. Why should you listen to us? Here you will learn what specifically you can do and how you can become involved in the change. You will discover that you can make a difference, that everyone can learn what they need to and that none of us are powerless. But shame-based performative gestures and short-term actions can actually be counterproductive. The topic is starting to cool as people's horror subsides. The populists are moving on to the next big thing, Brexit in the UK, the election in the US. Now is the time to take action before all is subsumed with normal COVID life again. Can we get a structural improvement and move toward better habits? At the core of what we are doing here stand the principles of mediation and we will borrow powerful tools and frameworks from peacemaking too. You, we wish to engage with you, to have you come on the journey with us. So here are some of the ways you can get involved. Type questions, discuss this amongst yourselves, your families and with your friends, especially the ones that don't agree with you. This is where you will get your best workout. Write something, publish it on social media, do the background work, read up on history, race, whiteness, the missteps of the metropolitan elite. You know who you are. Polish up on mediation tools and learn about peacemaking tools too. Take action within your community. We make a request of you at the end of this talk, type in the chat, send us an email, what you are going to do. And we will take this as a promise. And I have now the pleasure to hand over to our host and guest speaker, Francine Stock and Theona Williams. So Francine, 
Francine, most of you uh, will have seen her already on television or listened to her wonderful voice on the radio. She's an experienced and respected broadcaster for both radio and television. And over the decades, she has reported for and presented many programs, including the Money Program and Newsnight, as well as one-off documentaries and series on politics, current affairs, and the arts. She is also a mediator, a published author of both novels and nonfiction. She's an honorary fellow of Jesus College Oxford, where she read modern languages. Welcome, thank you for being here and doing this interview for us. And Tiona, we see her lovely smile. She is a peace builder. With her attention on international peace and security, Tiona has spent her career in advisory roles to senior officials and in managing programs focused on improving security, stability and governance in fragile and conflict affected states. She has first-hand experience in investigating active violent conflict in preventive diplomacy and in development and humanitarian assistance. She spent five years with the United Nations Development Programme and has worked for a number of donor governments, international NGOs and private contractors. Her main geographical focus has been South Sudan, Haiti and Papua New Guinea. Mateona is also an experienced trainer and facilitator, and she spent the first 10 years of her professional life as an actor. She believes strongly in the power of the arts and peace building. In the last two years, she's been the CEO of the Business Plan for Peace, an organization founded by Dr. Silla Elworthy that supports people to undertake the inner work required for us to be our most effective as well as engaging with institutions across sectors, working at local and global levels. As of November, she will return to the UN as Deputy Head of Office for the UN Peacekeeping Mission in the DRC Congo. And we wish you a lot of success and luck with that. Thank you very much, Susanna. And hello, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure, absolutely, to be here. And I'm particularly delighted to be talking to Tiona today because of the amazing breadth of her work. And also, we're very lucky to be able to talk to her just as she starts off with a, a new job um, imminent. Um, and Tiona, I'm wondering if we can start perhaps with a bit of context, which will help everybody, I'm sure, about this whole process of of peace building, I mean, about your work in this, you know, bearing in mind the context in which we're speaking today. So over to you. Mm, thank you. Um, I'm delighted to, to be here. Thanks for the great introductions. Um, it's an honor to be in conversation with you, Francine. Um, and, uh, and yeah, for the, those of you that are, that are listening, thank you very much. Um, I think there's a broad, um, there's a wealth of experience amongst you, the audience, um, and so I hope that what we touch on, um, there'll be something in it for, for each person to take further forward. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, as you've, you've said it all in your introduction, I am a peace builder, and I use that term, or I understand that term in its broadest sense. So it doesn't matter where I am, it doesn't matter who I'm engaging with, I have this default, <laughs> um, maybe that stems from a, um, a distinct lack of, um, I don't like and I can't tolerate violent conflict or any kind of conflict. Conflict is a very natural part of life, but I, I think my adversity to it um, is partly what informs my, um, my kind of natural tendency towards looking to build bridges, to mediate, to, um, to find and help people build peace. Um, and I think I would just add that uh, a couple of things that underlie everything that I do, whether it's obvious peace building in the international development sense, um, or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, informal conversation with somebody that's, um, that's stuck somehow. Um, everything that underlie, everything is under, is under, what underlies that, excuse me, um, is my arts background that was mentioned. Um, the skills and insight that we get 
through working in the arts and, and the arts quite broad, you know, in a broad sense. I worked mainly in theatre and television, but um, in the performing arts, but in all the arts, it, the, the skills and insights that it gives us are so human. It just constantly brings us back to our humanity. Um, and whether it's because we're vulnerable, whether it's because we're seeking to uh, represent other people in roles that we play, um, whether we're looking at a painting and it just touches our heart or music, the arts are so powerful. So I still consider myself an artist and that definitely underlies what I do and how I do what I do. And also I studied anthropology. So as an anthropologist, that's also essential in how I view the world, its people, and how I engage with people. Um, and I also have a very strong, wonderful idealism, which I'm very happy to have, despite I also have my cynicism that seems to be increasing over the years. Um, but I always come back to a very idealistic and quite a naive um, perspective on things. And I find that that is, leaves me refreshed and hopeful. Um, so let me stop there for now. Well, that's a great combination, that idealism wrapped in a bit of cynicism. This is often a very, very good combination of things together. Um, well, let's talk specifically then about some of the key principles of, um, of peacemaking that you think, if we're talking maybe about other sectors, perhaps about, um, about the legal sector or, um, or the finance sector. I mean, are there things within peacemaking that you think might be applicable to that? Definitely, definitely. I think in a, a peacemaking environment, well, first of all, most people, fighters included, so I'm talking about where you've got violent conflict, which is in far too many parts of, of our world. Um, most people, including the fighters, are exhausted and they want an end to violence. So you begin to see that if you are at the peacemaking stage of a, of a peace process. Um, and, and that's really where some of the frustration comes because you, you know that the majority of people are, are done with fighting. Nobody wants fighting to happen at all, let alone be sustained. And yet what you also have within that context is low or no trust um, and the stakes are very high. And so what we do with that, we tend to, in the current way that we do this business of international peacemaking and peace building, we tend to set up peace processes in a very safe way, in as safe a way as possible. Now, of course, that has huge advantages and is necessary in many senses. However, what that ends up doing is creating exclusive processes. Right? If you're going to do it safely, then let's just minimize who's involved. Let's just have a private conversation here. Don't worry about the people over there because they're a bit more difficult because they've had a really hard time. So we'll leave those over there. And you end up with them. Um, and also because there's usually a, a race for power, um, you end up with a very exclusive process. And that exclusive process is unsustainable from a peace uh, perspective. So peace is not going to be sustained if you have an exclusive process. It's completely clear. We've had far too many examples of seeing that. Um, one very clear example of uh, research that, um, that UN Women did some years ago now, and I think there's probably been an update on the statistics, but the inclusion of women in formal peace processes, so if you're talking about what often gets called track one, which is the kind of high negotiation table where countries or elements within a country, if it's a civil war, where they sit together, um, usually around that, that top table, there's around 2% of women. It's a very male-dominated uh, table. And usually... Peace agreements or power sharing agreements as they often um, end up being, they will last on average for about five years. So not at all sustainable. If you bring in up to 10% of women around that table, again, these are statistics, um, so you, you, know, you give or take a little bit, but the minute you've got a significant number of women at the table, peace agreements tend to last about 15 years. So then you ask yourself, well, why would that be? 
Um, and it's not just, oh, well, we've got women and so women feel represented. Women bring a whole different perspective into the room. Women's experience of violence <clears throat> is very different from men's experience. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's often because um, it, it tends to be the men that fight or the men and the boys that fight. But the women um, suffer wars or violent conflict in, in many ways because they carry the burdens of the orphaned, the children, the wounded, uh, the raped, the, you know, those that are really, unfortunately, the civilians that tend to be on, um, mostly, most uh, significantly affected by violence. And so they come into the room with the, the ability to grasp and tackle the root causes of violent conflict. And what men tend to do, and it's a great generalization, but what men tend to do because they've been the fighters and because there's a rush for power and the powerful positions are male generally, they tend to just try and share up the pie without dealing with the root causes. So just to explain that example, um, it makes a big difference if you include more women. And there's a lot of work being done to include more women at the top table of, uh, of a peace process. So that's one example of the, what, you, what you can suffer from if you have an exclusive process. Um, and if I bring that to corporations, to the business sector, to the legal profession, financial sector, for example, many corporations now are realizing that they operate in a very exclusive way. And often it's through habit, deep cultural habit that has been built up over years. Um, but the power remains with a few. So who sits at the board, you know, who's on the board? We know this, you know, there's enough work that's been done. It's very evident now that they are very exclusive, uh, that, that the big corporations and, um, and some of these sectors that we're considering are very exclusive in how they operate. We now have this opportunity, if we're talking about diversity and inclusion from a race perspective, we've got this opportunity in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and others, um, Breonna Taylor and many others, we have the opportunity to address this and look at what happens if I have an inclusive process. And an inclusive, I believe and I've seen that inclusive entities endure. Um, because you get a commitment from more people. If you include me, then I begin to trust you. And I'm much more likely to bring my best to whatever my role is within the organization, the company, and so forth. So I think we have a real, I'm happy to have this conversation now because I think it's a real opportunity that we need to grasp around the real benefits of having a more inclusive um, entity, whatever our entity is. Let's say, I mean, to bring it to a sort of practical thing, because clearly what you're saying is that there's no, there's no quick fix about these things. But if I'm in an institution that I can recognise, if I get to the point that I can recognise it's both exclusive and possibly over a number of you know, decades, if not centuries, actively excluding, I mean, what are the first things that I can start to do about it? Hmm. Well, I think Susanna highlighted it in her introduction. Um, I think the first things to do is to look at yourself, you know? Just look at yourself. What am I bringing? What are my prejudices? What are my blind spots? Um, what are my habits? And are they feeding into an inclusive or an exclusive um, culture? And that's not about blame. It's not about getting it wrong or right. It's about recognizing how, how we've come up what culture we have come up within. Um, and that's why for so many people, and I imagine many people watching this and listening to this conversation, they haven't had to think about, for example, they haven't had to think about anything to do with black lives. Uh, you know, if I'm a, you know, if I was a, a, a white person that had been brought up in a very privileged and advantaged, predominantly white environment, then it hasn't have really been my business, right? So now you have the opportunity to make it your business and actually you need to make it your business because we need to make this change. So I think it's about look at yourself, ask yourself some difficult questions and go through your own process. Encourage yourself, dare yourself to reflect, review and then research. Okay, so 
where can I go to get to, to change whatever I want to change? What kind of conversations do I want to have? Am I willing to have? Um, and then look at your board, your team, your uh, department, um, your colleagues, and stretch out once you've done a bit of self-reflection, you know, if, I, if you're sitting on a board or you have an influence on a board, I would say put an item on your agenda, talk about it, um, and be have the courage to do that. And do you see um, do you see examples of? I mean, Susanna uh, mentioned kind of performative gestures. You know, it, so if somebody simply appoints a non-white person to a board, I mean, that is not in itself, is it, progress necessarily? No. No, not at all. I mean, yes, please do. But for me, appointing someone of colour onto a board should be the result of having done that work, right? So if I start by doing my own work, um, Susanna mentioned that in Business Plan for Peace, we do a lot of, uh, we give a lot of emphasis and support to people to develop their own inner work is what we call it. So internal work. Um, so if I've done that, and then I've had the, some of those often quite difficult conversations, either with one individual or with a board or a team, then naturally you'll find that process takes you to a point of like, okay, so I think now we know how to shift things within our, the, the personnel within our board. So of course we need to have more people of color on boards. Of course we need to have more women. Of course we need to have more people of all diversities, different ways of thinking, different sexualities and gender identities. But we don't do well if we just put out an advert and try and do that because that's like a sticking plaster on something without looking at the, at the root causes. And so I can link it back to my work in you know, and, and managing violent conflict and seeking to build and to make, keep and build peace. You don't get anything sustainable unless you go to the root causes. And we have to go back to ourselves in this case. Mm. So what about the possible crossover between the skills that you've observed over the years and, and dealt with of leadership? You know, you've seen a lot of different kinds of leadership around the world and some of the skills that are necessary for mediation. Do you see any crossover there? Yeah, huge crossover. You know, it's um, many of us are brought up and educated to learn how to speak effectively. Very few of us, and that's of course necessary and and um, and important. But very few of us are taught how to listen, and we know that listening is one of the core skills of a mediator. Um, it needs to be a core skill of all of us, whatever we call ourselves and whatever work we're doing. So listening for me is where everything begins and ends. And when I'm talking about listening, it's not, it, it's listening in its broadest sense. It's described in many different ways, whether it's active listening. Um, I call it naked listening <laughs> because it's about bringing yourself to a conversation or to um, uh, listen to somebody without all, you know, just kind of strip yourself of everything that you think you know, of everything that, you know, that you, that you believe and you think to be right and so forth. And just allow yourself to kind of just strip all of that away and truly listen and, and receive, observe, receive. So for me, when I talk about listening, it's, it's all of that. Um, and that's a skill to develop. It's not that some people can do it and some people can't. Everybody can do it. We all do it to some degree. But I think it's an essential skill to really hone, to really polish. So listening for sure. And then what goes with that, you know, so I spent many years as a, as a trainer in, in uh, leadership skills and specifically focusing on effective communication. So it's the core listening, the core communication skills. So questioning paraphrasing, clarifying, summarizing, um, you know, so it's not just about listening, but it's, it's all of that process. And the, the intention is about understanding and receiving someone else's reality. So you also need empathy, you need integrity, you need vulnerability, you need courage. So there's lots of qualities and lots of skills. And the more we develop those, I think especially, you know, it, it's stark for me when we talk about racism um, and 
to be able to sit in front for a black person to sit with a white person, a white person to sit with a black person and everything in between, to sit and really be prepared to accept the other person's reality, the other person's truth. If, if we can only do that, then we stand a chance of making some of the changes that are absolutely essential that we make. And I suppose, as with any kind of mediation process, it's that thing about checking your preconceptions all the time, you know, just mm -hmm. constantly testing what you are expecting the person to say against what they're really saying. Yeah, and not just listening and then preparing to speak. You know, many of us are like, our minds are busy, especially when it's a difficult or contentious subject or something that we care deeply about. You know, we're, we're just waiting for them to finish so that we can say, but, <laughs> you know, and so um, I do a lot of work in improvisation. And one of the core principles of improvisation is to say yes and rather than but. So if someone says something, you add to it, you accept it and you add to it. And that principle for me is very applicable um, in this type of conversation. And let's not kid ourselves. This is really difficult work. It's very, very difficult work especially if you're, you've always been the comfortable, privileged person and now you're being uh, encouraged to, for things to change, um, which also makes me think I should also clarify, please don't worry, it's not like black people want to take over. It's not a takeover that's coming. It's about a balancing. It's about an acceptance of how diverse we are and how enriching that is and how necessary that is. Mm -hmm for productive work aside from happy relationships yeah and how much better you know it, it can be for everyone. but there is I, I think you actually identify something really interesting there which is there is a sort of slight um you know there can be a kind of helplessness or sort of paroxysm of of what the hell do we do about this you know that 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 the acknowledgement of white privilege then brings about a sort of terrible <laughs> moment of stasis afterwards where people are sort of slightly paralyzed and don't quite know what to do so okay the sort of first things the first little steps what would you what would you say yeah i mean i it's uh i feel a little bit uncomfortable i don't know what anybody else's first step is right and it's not for me to tell anybody what their first step is so i'm not going to pretend to do that and but i would say that uh, you know, it's the point I already made. It's about taking a moment to, well, more than a moment. It's about being willing to do whatever is required, right? And to know and to trust yourself that you will be okay yeah. through that. Um, so, again, in Business Plan for Peace, this idea of inner work, having an inner work practice, which is different for everybody. For some people, it might be yoga, it might be walking in nature, it might be writing, it might be a religious practice. Something that gives you the tools to be able to do something about what you realize and what you recognize when you explore some of this stuff that we're talking about. You know, if I do kind of read a book and go, oh, if I read White Fragility, for example, or if I, if I read some of these books that white people are being encouraged to read, and that's going to bring up an awful lot, for, I would say, for 99% of people. So it's really important that you have a way to deal with that, right? And that might be, you know, it could just be having a dialogue with people that you trust. It could be writing. It could be so many different things. But we need, I really encourage people to develop something that gives them the tools to help them through that process and commit to it. You know, there's some, there's some books, um, there's one in particular that comes to mind that is a 28-day program, right? So you have to commit to doing this. This is about recognizing your white, right, your white supremacy and privilege and, uh, and working through and beyond that. Um, it's just not easy stuff. So, yeah, we have to take care how we... Uh, engage ourselves. But um, beyond saying um, start with yourself, um, then I don't, I can't say what anyone else's first step should be. Absolutely. Well, that's the first task. Tiona, that's wonderful. There's going to be more from you, I know, in a moment, but I'm going to call in uh, Susanna now for sort of, if you like, the, the, the cedar perspective on all that. Yeah. So I, I was really moved hearing all of that, which um, I think was was so spot on, Tiona, but um, it is um, 
I think it's not discussed enough. And I think we have some, some reactions here from the audience, also from um, some, some of our CEDA people, where it resonated what you said. So there is one question around, and I just try to find, yeah, it's fairness. Because you mentioned uh, that briefly, so fairness is often lacking in society. So how do you think highlighting this helps in specific, specific, specifically peace initiatives? Because there are a lot of um, long ongoing conflicts and that's something we experience often in, in mediation that people say it's not fair. The whole concept of fairness is often difficult to address. For me, uh, when, I, when I hear the word fairness, I think of justice. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and then I also think of parents saying to their children, well, life isn't fair, get over it. Um, and, um, and so I think in terms of peace building, um, the fairness is absolutely about, is, is completely linked to justice and being able to um, establish a mechanism or a process that is um, appropriate for the people that are involved to you know, to be able to tell their truth, to be able to engage in a in in a in a dialogue or a discourse or a process that um, encourages um, some resolution or recognition of what has occurred. So your truth and reconciliation um, processes are, are a good example of that. Uh, and I think it's fairness and. Uh, and justice to some degree, although the lawyers out there may well um, uh, correct me, um, but to some degree are subjective. And so it's, that's why the process is, is so important. The process is designed by and, uh, and for those that are seeking that fairness so that they know when they feel that something is fairer. Um, and fairness also to me, highlights what comes out of a process like that. So what do we end up with? And is, does it feel more equitable? Does it feel like I have as much of a chance at my livelihood, my safety, my, um, my development as anybody else around me? Um, and so it's the outcome of, of a process that also outs people's truths and, and works hard to do some kind of reconciliation. Long process, a lot of patience and courage uh, as an understatement are needed um, for such a process. Yeah, so that's possibly one of the main differences between the so-called commercial mediation world and the peacemaking world. So in the commercial world, everything needs to happen quickly and in one day often. Mm. And I often think, okay, where is actually the healing process? Or is that something we should think about in a commercial mediation? I think that's often what we discuss. Uh, when the so-called transformative school comes into the commercial mediation school and there are discussions around that uh, mediation process doesn't have to be transformative, but then others say it's per se already transformative because if you start just a little bit of listening, then something happens already if you want or not. And that leads me to another question we got from the audience about um, Western ignorance and willful blindness toward racism and that has become quite apparent this year when I think of the whole spectrum of uh, from far left to far right um, and I've been listening this summer to a lot of interviews and sometimes got confused where are people standing and hence I, I was saying I hear much more shouting than actually listening where um, I think what would you say privileged white people and I don't even know we have to say the word privileged because I think white people are per se privileged make a meaningful contribution and start a healing dialogue well I think I mean I think that is really interesting and I think you know since I mean in some ways I I find it quite difficult that obviously the you know the murder of George Floyd um one finds institutions, even institutions with which one has been quite closely involved, suddenly saying, now we have to change everything. And you think, well, yes, it's terrible, but 
why are you saying this now? I mean, this is what I find quite difficult, that so many initiatives that have started, you know, if there was an element of self, um, self-awareness or self, you know, just thinking about it, this process should have been there at some level a long time ago. And it's quite, and therefore, you're slightly suspect, you're slightly suspicious of things that just start like that, because you wonder whether they will endure in the same way as, a, and, and I think it does come down, as, as Tiana says, to like the little things, the constantly saying, when I did that, did I just assume that it would be like this for everybody? Or did I think about the obstacles that, you know, that I've never had to think about here. I mean, you know, of course, one or everybody has their own obstacles, but there have been a whole set that maybe I've never quite considered. And I think those are, those are the really important, those tiny, tiny, if you like, almost imperceptible, not particularly, you know, heroic or those sort of observations, I think possibly do have to be where it starts. Yeah. And I think what, thank you, Francine. And I think, um, one reason why this is not something that we can take care of overnight is because, you know, if we think about how do we really glean those tiny things, mm -hmm. um, those tiny examples, um, and it's over time, it's through, through friendship, through relationship, it's through knowing people, right? And so, you know, if, again, I'm going to use the example of a boardroom. If you're hanging out with the board, you know, once every quarter you meet and you have, you know, uh, now everything's virtual, but you know, you have coffee, you have lunch, you go for, you know, you do things that are outside of the business of the meeting. You get to know each other. Of course you do. Um, same with, you know, your team, same with whatever. Um, but it's through building those relationships that, that you, that you get to see those little things. And I think if, if I, I'm as white as I'm black, by the way, and my one parent is white um, and one parent is, is black, um, although much more mixed than that and, and not obviously white. <laughs> However, um, I'm, the, the white part of me, if I can imagine that for a moment, and the reason I, it's hard to imagine is because I was raised in the UK and so I was black from the day I was born, happily so, but I identify as black um, for that reason. Um, but if I think of, uh, of myself as a white person, it's almost like if, if I want to progress this, I need to kind of, I don't know, put on a different pair of glasses when I go to work every day now, or a different, take a slightly different attitude or a slightly different perspective, or have bigger ears or something, so that when I am with my colleagues, be they board members or staff members or anything in between, I'm observing things and receiving things in a slightly different way so that I'm, I'm, I tune in to those, to picking up on those small things that for years I may not have even noticed. So it's that, I think that's an opportunity. And if we're starting to do this work, as I call it, this inner work and this reflective work, then we are more likely to be more attuned to those things because we're more likely to then find the courage and the appropriate way to have a conversation with a black colleague to listen and learn more and then build trust and then and then and then right so so yeah. I think uh, it's got to be quite organic but it's got to be a conscious decision Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I think I think another thing that plays into that is actually language. I mean, because I spend a lot of time with words, I'm really kind of hypersensitive to language, but I've become even more um, aware of it now, just in terms of little things, slight you know, um, slight inflections about that that convey otherness. You know, all those things that you suddenly pick up that that now I find really make my hackles rise in a way that um, possibly, you know, a few years ago I'm, I might not have been. And I think, you know, if we can all develop that, mm. that's, a, that's a good thing. Is that something, because we discussed it in the peacemaking context, that the informality plays quite an important role to move a process on? But to create informality means you need to create situations where you can have those conversations. You're possibly um, not likely to, to look for those who would normally exclude you. Or as a, as a white person, would I automatically look for someone who is different? So I, I think there is 
um, the question how to create those moments which are possibly completely alien to us to, to, to have them, to create an informal space where those conversations happen. And I agree with you, it has to be conscious. Is there in, in the work you do with organizations something um, what you specifically do to engineer that? Sorry, no. <laughs> because it's got to be organic. It's got to be true, right? Um, it, you know, it's... Uh, I, I honestly, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it comes back to those elements of building trust. How do you build trust? You don't, you don't just, you know, it doesn't just happen. Because if I'm... You've got to be of a very particular um, disposition to push through and stay in an awkward space, right? So if I'm, um, okay, I suppose this is something that I've, I've experienced a lot is being a, one of the only women and one of the only black women in many formal spaces. And um, the minute there's a break in a coffee break or something in a, in, you know, in a long meeting or something, um, everything is telling me leave the room get out, take a break, breathe, you know, <laughs> go and talk to someone who you can relate to. And that's what the majority of people will do, right? So it take, you've got to be very conscious to say, you know what, I'm just going to go over to this person mm -hmm. who really upset me from mm -hmm. what he said or what she said in that last session. I'm going to go and share a cup of coffee or whatever with them. So, you know, it, it, I don't think you can, I don't think there are, certain things that you can engineer, I think it is organic. So I think it's about, because it's about changing deep culture, right? It's, it's deep cultural habits that we're talking about changing. And, and there's, to, to that, exactly a question from, from a um, member, from a younger member of, of our community saying, would you agree that one of the most effective ways to challenge destructive behavior among some groups comes from within? So he gives us an example. So a group of lads making homophobic or sexist comments, however harmless they may intend it to be, having someone in that group saying, this isn't funny. And do you think this has more powerful effect than being condemned from outside their group? I'd love to know his own answer. Um, I, I think, yes, I think absolutely. Um, and that's why you know, that's, why, that's where we see change, right? It's that courageous individual. I love that example. It's that courageous individual who dares to risk not being cool or not doing the unacceptable thing. Um, mm. And it doesn't always work first time. But someone who will dare to do that and then dare to do that again and then someone else will dare to do it. And that's how you start to see a change. Um, very, very rarely does anything external imposed achieve what it seeks to achieve <laughs> um, and I'm thinking of peace processes and the fact that we you know we sail in as international outsiders with a clear agenda do it our way we're paying for it this is how it's going to go doesn't work right through to that example of like if it was someone from the outside who wasn't one of those guys um they'd no they, I don't think they would succeed yeah I think it, it it all comes down, it's simple but not trivial at all, down to the human being and the human element, which you mentioned a couple of times, which we often ignore when we say there has to be, just the word I use, typical, engineered. We have to engineer a solution. We have to plan. We uh, I think that is possibly already counterproductive to the organic process. Whilst there has to be a process, within that process, what I learned from you is flexibility, also to be to see what what's on the ground what is there and and what what is expressed because there are a lot of assumptions i we have we grown up with which we need to challenge constantly mm. yeah i mean i think you know clear structures systems and processes are very very important so when i'm talking about things are organic i'm not just saying leave everything to be however it is and someone might say the right thing at some time. Not at all. I think there's absolute value in, in those structures and systems. However, when those systems, and then we know in, from a racism 
perspective, and I talk about the UK because that's where I am at the moment and that's where I was raised, um, when you know that the system is so warped, it's so um, skewed against, you know, vast numbers of the population, um, then the system has to be changed. Yeah. Um, just looking, there is uh, one more question which uh, goes more in the um, art um, direction. So there's one that, uh, Tiwana, you are an artist and a peacemaker, and this person has had the privilege of working with learning disabled artists, and uh, they have seen how very skilled they are, the skills of empathy, curiosity, and compassion. Mm. So how do we better leverage the enormous talent of so-called soft skills in creating a better world? Ooh. Well, Francine, you may well also want to um, <laughs> contribute yeah. to this. Um, I think uh, I definitely would just touch on the so-called soft skills. I, I used to call them soft skills many years ago. I call them either essential or core skills now. Um, they're the human skills, right? They're the things that make us human. Um, I, it's not a very satisfying answer perhaps, but I think the, the way to do it is to keep, keep doing it and have more people who are engaging as the person who asked the question. It sounds like a, a beautiful um, endeavor. Um, and I was watching something um, uh, yesterday, um, just a, a brief, um, interview with a Japanese man who was working in Rwanda. He was an art, he's an artist. Um, and just seeing some of the impact of the work that he was doing, he did a, pro, a, a project where he, he was encouraging and, and helping Rwandan children to, uh, in their artistic nature of painting. And then every painting that they did, he would, he would purchase or get other people to purchase. And so it also was a developing livelihoods um, project. Um, and these, some of these children were just saying those experiences of working with him were transformative for their lives. Um, you know, from a, I'm thinking about there's, I think there's a psychoanalyst on, with us, you know, so from that, from that psychological perspective, um, self-belief, confidence, and just what the arts open up for, for people. So yeah, more of, more people doing more of that. It's beautiful and important work. And it is, and art is also a thing that's sort of outside all these issues, you know, it is, a, it is a place where people do meet. I mean, it at its best it is in some ways. I suppose the other thing I, I might just add in is that, um, you know, a lot of white people are going to get things wrong. <laughs> you know, we're going to put, we're going to say the wrong thing, put up a foot wrong or something. But at least if we're trying, you know, that's the, I think one shouldn't be put off from trying to make some of those connections or try because you think, oh, is this quite the right way to put? I think there is a little bit of that going on, that there's an awful self, I mean, a typically privileged self-consciousness about it. And um, that's something we just have to get rid of that really. Thank you, that's actually a really nice, like closing remark. I think you can't actually do something wrong by doing something and taking action. I think it's possibly the cost of not doing it is, is much bigger and we should dare to do a step. And um, I would like to ask both of you with a final question. So where's your, your biggest hope and optimism at the moment? These are, these are kind of little, apparently quite superficial things and I'm sort of cheering up a much more nuanced thing, but, but I think the fact that, you know, there's so many, uh, so many of these books that have been written in the last that have actually sold really well. And maybe not everybody is taking on board everything in it, but that's how we gradually, you know, get to know more about things by absorbing a lot. Um, and I think the success of that and the fact that the discussions are being had, this is a start. I mean, it has, I think my great grounds for optimism is like, this is not a good situation. It's just got to change and it's going to change. And when it does, it will be better for everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. I, I, it's, um, it's a tough one, um, Susanna, with specific reference to racism. Um, it feels very tough, actually, to, to find optimism and hope. Um, I look a lot to the States at the moment. I have family there and... Um, uh, it's a seriously tough mm -hmm. time in, in, in our history. 
Um, I think what gives me hope and optimism is every additional white person that I meet who says that they are prepared to do the work and that I see them doing the work. Um, and let me be clear, black people have and will continue to do the work. We have no choice. We've always done it. We will always have to do it. But the more white people now that are willing to do the work, because it's, as I said, this is very difficult work because it's very, goes very deep to our core. Um, so the more white people that I see and hear are doing the work, that's very optimistic and hopeful because we can't change it. It's, a, it's white people doing the work that will create the change. It's not anything else, right? So it's essential that that happens. So I encourage everybody who's listening, please reflect on what you need to do, what you're willing to do, and what you feel able to do, and please do it. Um, and then I think the other thing that gives me hope is the extraordinary ability of my black brothers and sisters who just continue to dig deeper and find the strength and the compassion and the wherewithal to keep going non-violently um, and to manage somehow the depth of anger and despair and grief that so many people have lived for so long. Um, and I think finally, the really what you were saying, Francine, that it, it's inevitable now. I, I do believe, I know I'm idealistic, but it's inevitable that this change has to happen and, you know, so no point just waiting for other people to make the change. The change happens through us. And so, yeah, let's, let's just work together and, and do what we need to do to create something that serves us all. Thank you. I think there is no more to add to that. Thank you for those thought-provoking, um, yeah, what, what you shared with us and being very open and going deep and um, sharing also your quite um, your your journey, and we got the message. Um, I definitely commit um, to do the work and continue doing the work, and I'm happy to be held accountable also by you checking in and saying, Susanna, are you still doing the work? And to remind others to do the same. So th thank you for that, and uh, Francine, thank you for um, yeah, enabling Teona to share that. And we see you soon and good luck with your next big mission in, in Congo. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Francine, thank you, Susanna. Oh, thank you, Teona.